This is the first time I've ever been in this room when there wasn't, a, uh, there wasn't an ounce of estrogen present, not one ounce, nothing. Man, this room is filled with testosterone, uh, testosterone tonight. 80% of it is mine, of course, but man, we got a room full of men in the house. Are y'all excited to be here tonight? Can you do, can you do Thursday night church? You know, we don't, you know, we're modern Baptists today. We don't do night church anymore. For the first 10 years of my ministry, I did Sunday morning twice, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And uh, I have coffee with two young pastors once a month for a couple of hours talking about discipleship, accountability. They're small church guys in Escambia County, and they still do that. I told him, I said, you guys are the men of God. Because I don't know how, I used to do all that stuff. I don't know how I've, I've done it. It's a young man's game. Sunday morning twice, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And so, well, here at Hill, we don't do the night thing much anymore. In fact, I'll be in just about a month, 55 years old. I'm within like an hour of my bedtime right now. And so, I, you know what my prayer has been today? Don't fall asleep during your own sermon. Uh, tonight. So hopefully we won't do that. Uh, what a blessing Terry Palmer was in setting up everything tonight. Where's Terry? Where is he? I don't know where he is. I think, he, I think he's gone home and gone to bed tonight. No, there he is right there. My brother, thank you very much. Everybody should know Terry ghost writes all of my sermons for me. He's the ghost writer. And uh, what, a, what a gifted and wonderful friend. I'm so thankful to know him and to have him as a friend and a Christian brother. And uh, what about those testimonies tonight? I am so thankful for those two guys. Put your hands together. I, uh, through recent years, have gotten to know Kyle Patterson and, and Danny Brady very well. Um, but I was a little troubled by both of those um, tonight. And I've decided first thing tomorrow morning, which is a Friday morning, I'm going to issue an executive order that if it's a Hillcrest-produced video, no Florida State paraphernalia in the video. Um, I thought that was already in the bylaws. Apparently it's not. And, but it, uh, it will be taken before the church at the next business conference. And then uh, thank you, Dale Simmons, my wonderful friend and colleague. Pastor to men. Let me just say, I keep telling Dale, you need to get an outside speaker. These guys, I mean, these are people who hear me once or twice a week, every week. The last thing probably they want to do is come to church and, oh, it's the old guy again. Get somebody else. And yet he keeps saying, no, we want you to come. And so I'm very humbled and um, honored to be able to be here for a few minutes uh, with you tonight. And uh, as always, it's a joy to hang out with the great men of Hillcrest. When I was growing up, and I told you this, I think, last year, I grew up in a church, and there was hardly any men in it. I mean, it was female-led, female-served, female-taught, except for the pulpit, and female-driven. And uh, so what a great privilege. I've pastored two churches. Both of them have been full of men, uh, and not just men coasting, full of men who were serious about their faith and wanted to be men of God, and, and that's certainly true in our church as reflected by, I mean, you know, the average size church in America is 120 people across the board, 
And we've got three times that many at a men's gathering to eat barbecue on a Thursday night for crying out loud. So thank you for being here tonight and also thank you very much for the opportunity uh, to spend a few minutes with you from God's Word. If you have a copy of the Bible, and I hope you do, it is permissible to bring a Bible on Thursday night to church, but if, if you haven't, power it up on the phone or we'll have it hopefully on the screens for you. First Timothy chapter 4 near the back of your Bible for just a few minutes tonight. When I was with you last year, I spoke uh, on the subject, the man of God, the man of God. And you know what I want to talk to you tonight about? The godly man, the godly man. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, there is a difference. And it may be a difference of degree, but I don't think the two are necessarily the same thing. A man of God is someone that you are as a follower of Jesus Christ of the male sex. Now, how many of you here tonight would, don't stand up, but would raise your hand and say, I know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Would you just raise your hand? You're here and you know without a doubt, okay, you're a man of God because that's your identity through faith in Jesus Christ. It's who you become from the moment that you're saved. Now, you can be an immature man of God or you could be a mature man of God, but whether you know it or not or whether you like it or not, you're a man of God. And that's one of the great things about life, maybe the greatest of all for a guy. But just because you're a man of God doesn't necessarily mean you're living as a godly man. David was a man of God but he didn't always live as a godly man. Can I have an amen tonight? That makes sense? Samson was a powerful man of God, but in many moments of his life, he was a terrible example for young men. There's a lot to dislike about the man of God named Samson when you read him closely in the book of Judges. He was a man of God, but he wasn't always a godly Man, Peter was a man of God, but he didn't always act like a godly man. A man of God is your identity as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but a godly man is something that you become. A man of God, something you are. A godly man, something you become intentionally and over time. And that process of growing and increasing in godliness is what we call Christian discipleship. The Bible says in the book of 2 Peter, add to your faith godliness. And that's kind of what we want to talk about for a few minutes tonight. Because the word godliness is an important biblical word. It, it's a word that in the Greek New Testament has to do with reverence for God or respect for God as lived out through your life. And so John R. W. Stott says that a godly man is a God-respecting, God-fearing man who lives his life with obedience because of it. So if you're a godly man here tonight, you're going to want to honor God with the decisions of your life and with the roles and responsibilities of your life, with the stewardship of your life. 
And it's interesting of the 16 times the word godly or godliness is used in the New Testament, 12 of the 16 times you find it in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus. Isn't that amazing? Because you'd think that the word godly or godliness is all over the New Testament, and it's not. It's almost exclusively in what we call those pastoral epistles. Twelve times in 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, and the other four times are in either 1st or 2nd Peter. So it's Peter and Paul that are talking about this concept of character known as godliness exclusively in the New Testament. So these overwhelming uses of godliness are given to young men, Timothy and Titus. In my day, we would call a preacher. I used to be a preacher boy, and I woke up day before yesterday and realized I wasn't a preacher boy anymore. I'm an old codger preacher now. But these guys were preacher boys, young men, probably in their early to mid-20s by this time. And they're pastoring in settings that require great responsibility. These are not men that had been to seminary. They didn't have any academic training. They didn't have any theological training. What they got, they got from being discipled by guys like Paul who took them under his wing and made men of God into godly men. Timothy was left to pastor the church at Ephesus, population three to 500,000, major city, major church. Titus pastored the church on the island of Crete. So these were guys that didn't have any formal background, and yet I don't have to tell you, at least I shouldn't have to tell you, that back when they were pastoring, the world that they pastored in was filled with decadence. Now, we got it in, in, in our day and time today, but it's still not, even in 21st century American culture, it's still not as in your face as it was on the streets of places like Ephesus and Corinth and Crete and the like. I mean, we go in the darkness. We pull out technological devices in order to entertain ourselves with decadence throughout the world today, but they just did it openly out in the street. They did it in places of worship. And so Paul understood that. Temptation was rampant for these young men of God. False teaching abounded. There were people by the score who would pervert the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if these young men and many others like them, if they failed for a nanosecond to stay connected to Jesus Christ and to grow in Christian discipline and to grow in Christian character, Paul knew the church of Jesus Christ faces a very bleak future. So Paul writes to these young men of God in order to help impress upon them the importance as men of God of consistently becoming godly men. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, short passage of Scripture, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, jumping right out of that little short passage there is that central phrase, which is the key to understanding it. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Train yourself 
to be godly. Would you say that together with me? Together. Train yourself to be godly. Oh, I love the bass sound in here. I don't get that on Sunday morning. Let's say it again. Train yourself to be godly. That's the key. Not train yourself to show up at church on time. Though some of you do a lot better job at that. Amen. Get here on time. But that's not what it says. The Bible does not say train yourself to be active in a ministry. Though that's a really good thing. But because God looks at the heart before he looks at your activity, his focus is growth, not in terms of activity, but in terms of character. You know, for years and years, the emphasis in most churches was focused on getting people busy for God. That was the way it was in churches I was growing up in from the time I was a kid, teenager, young adult, get busy, do, 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 do. That didn't sound like it should be saying a church, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Accomplish things for God, stay busy for God. And people were encouraged to do that without a strong emphasis on developing character, developing first a relationship with God. And I don't know if it's altogether a great idea to encourage people to be busy for God when you're not encouraging them to develop a lasting relationship with God. That's unwise, and that is not Christian discipleship. Listen to what the great pastor A.W. Tozier wrote many years ago. How tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ, and we're not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We've been snared into the coils of a spurious logic that insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. Instead, our what? Programs, methods, organizations, a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. Man, that is spot on right there. And that was written like in the 1940s for crying out loud. And the same is true today. I mean, we've made this emphasis, come to Jesus, accept Jesus, confess Christ as your Lord and Savior, be baptized, all of which are necessary things to do. We hope to baptize a bunch of people on Sunday. Baptism celebrations come out. I hope some of you will be baptized. But from that, it's supposed to issue this deep, abiding relationship with God that consistently feeds your soul. And instead, over the decades, we've emphasized activity and busyness to propagate the growth of the church. Not saying it's bad or even unimportant, it's just not central. And the end result of that is we become, you ever heard this phrase, a mile wide and an inch deep. People go through the motions of Christianity all the while. They're really not connected to God. They serve. I'm telling you, you can even be deeply involved in the life of your church. Maybe even give a little money. Old Terry was over there a minute ago, and he got off, and he said, now, I'm not going to talk about tithing. And I'm sitting there saying, do it, do it. Why not? You give you a little money, not be growing as a Christian, not be growing deep as a disciple of Christ. Down deep, you could be dry and anemic, not very authentic in your walk with Jesus. Shallow Christians serving in shallow churches, 
filled with people, very busy in activities, just not very deep, and really not very lastingly effective. Reminds me of the story of the really bad golfer. I'm a really bad golfer. I started to make this story about me, but it wouldn't have been true, although it could have been about me, because this really bad golfer got out one time and teed his ball up, and he had this bad habit of picking his head up before he struck the ball, and he missed the ball completely, striking an anthill instead, ants just scattered by the millions. And so his friends kind of laughed at him, said, just do it again. We won't even count that. And the guy wagged again and swung, and he missed the golf ball again, striking the anthill a second time, sending ants scattering further by the gajillions. One ant looked at another, said, man, what in the world? are we going to do? The other land looked at him and said, I don't know, but we better get on the ball or we are surely going to die. <laughs> and that's true for some of us in the room tonight. It's time to spiritually get on the ball or otherwise the news is not real good for you spiritually. We need to get serious about what really matters to God. And what really matters to God is your personal growth in Christ-likeness, character, and spiritual maturity and integrity. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to issue a declaration of war against whatever's keeping you from developing an everyday, thriving, personal, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to remind everybody the focus of biblical Christianity is not, a, it's not knowing about God. It's not even about serving God. Biblical Christianity is about knowing God. It's about knowing God. It's about talking to God. It's about listening to God. It's about becoming like God. And knowing God always begins with you. See, we've let our teachers do what spiritual development has happened in us for far too long. You can't just depend on the preacher for your spiritual growth and maturity. I mean, I'm not responsible. And see, here's the spiritual principle. This is what I want you to take home with you tonight. Here's the takeaway. I am responsible for my own spiritual growth. I'm your pastor. I am not your mama. I am responsible for my own spiritual growth. Let's say that together. Together, I am responsible for my own spiritual growth. My job is to feed you a steady diet of the Word of God in the fry leaf of my Bible right at the very front, written in red letters. You probably can't see it, but it's written right there in red letters. Down at the very bottom right there, preaching is the priority. And so the priority of my life and calling is to keep my flock fed. That's the pastor's role. Feed the sheep, lead the sheep. And you're going to get that here at Hillcrest. But that's not, that's not primary in terms of spiritual growth in your life. That's designed to be a part of it, but not the total whole. The reality is spiritual growth really doesn't begin at church. It begins at home begins at home. What we do on Sunday is kind of a culmination. It should be a pep rally celebrating what God has done in our lives and through our lives from the previous Monday 
until Saturday night when we went to bed. The Lord's Day is about celebrating a week spent in constant communion with Jesus Christ. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's great, man, but I don't know how to do that. Well, I get that for some people, but I've heard that from people that have been coming to church for years. I get it from novices. I get it from baby Christians, from people who have just entered in to a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why, if that's the case, if you don't know how to do it, identifying that you need help is great. That's a good place to start. But if you're not growing spiritually, you have to determine why not. Is this an ability problem or is this a motivational problem? If it's an ability problem, if you really don't know how to grow, if you're new in the faith, haven't really taken your faith seriously to this point, haven't been trained in the spiritual disciplines, then as Terry said, we're equipped to help you here at Hillcrest. We got Doug's discipleship class. We've got Eric's spiritual disciplines class. There are a number of good first steps to take in order to understand how to feed yourself more effectively. And those classes are getting ready to get fired up. And you need to get fired up and plug in and say, I'm not going to plead ignorance anymore. I'm going to find out how I can more effectively grow myself so I'm not dependent just on the pastor, I'm not dependent just on the connect group leader or anybody else. Now, if you're stagnant, that's an ability problem, but if you're stagnant, not growing because it's a motivational problem, the solution is to pray for revival. Prayer is the solution for you. You need to ask God to show up in a dramatic way And to take that heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, to give you a passion to know God, is more important. It's like the sermon on Sunday that we spoke about where so many people are living in idolatry and they just don't even know it. Because truth be told, there are multiple things in their life that if they were honest, they would say, you know what, I do love these things more than I love God. I do. And I need God to break me so that he is my lone passion in life. And through this dynamic, enthusiastic connectedness to him, it transforms every other relationship of my life. Your wife should want you to love God more than you love her because it's at that point she's going to be saying, what has happened to him? Praise God. Because it will revolutionize the way you love your wife, the way you live as a husband, the way you live as a father. So you need to pray for revival. You need to make sure you're accountable. I'm telling you, people are falling, falling morally, falling spiritually. And when I become aware of it, especially as people I know, nine out of ten of them are not accountable to anybody with spiritual things. They would confess Christ as Savior and Lord, but they're living life as lone rangers. Church is an afterthought, much less a connect group. They don't talk to anybody about spiritual things. And then they can't figure out, and then they want to blame God. No, I am responsible for my own spiritual growth. That's the bottom line. So determine whether it's an ability problem, a motivational problem, and cut to the heart so that God can begin fresh and anew with you and take you to a high plateau 
that you might experience things in your relationship and dynamic with God that you've never experienced before in your life. Look with me one more time. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. That's false teaching. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, that's the key phrase, train yourself to be godly. What I want to do is just kind of conclude tonight by looking at that one statement, emphasizing the three main words, train yourself and godly. And you could say the sentence emphasizing each of the main words and have something wonderful to talk about. Train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. And there are three dimensions right there that we can focus on. The first is the word train, this emphasis on training. How many of y'all go to the gym regularly? All over the room tonight. I need to do a better job of it. I've got one here in the church, right? The only problem is when I go in there, people in there, they want me to have a counseling session with them. They do. Hey, I've been meaning to come and talk to you. I can have earbuds in my ear. I can't hear you. I've been meaning to talk to you. Can I ask you a quick question? And it takes me two hours to do a 30-minute workout, so I just don't work out, and I'm getting fat. So we understand this concept of training. The Greek word for train there, gumnazo, gumnazo, gymnasium. We get our English gymnasium or gymnastics from it. What is a gymnasium? A house of training, a house of sweat, a house of discipline. That's why if you're using a New American Standard Version, it will say that, discipline yourself to be godly. The King James Bible, anybody got a KJV tonight? Exercise yourself unto godliness. Well, the word is discipline or, or training, gymnasium. Be spiritually gymnastic and grow and develop. Paul tells his young protege, Timothy, to train himself. He's telling him here to develop the necessary discipline in order to keep growing And when we use the term discipline, most of the time, it's a negative thing. I mean, if you grew up where you got spanked, you think discipline is like, mm, painful, right? Well, it is. Well, working out can be painful. Max Siebert, who's probably not here tonight, has nearly killed me. One of my own deacons has tried to put me in an early grave by handing me a sheet of paper with the exercise routine of the New York Mets on it. And it's like I'm in kindergarten and he hands me this graduate level exercise deal. That kind of conditioning and that kind of discipline can be painful. And so most of the time we hear it, we think negatively, we think sprints and all of that stuff that go along with it, getting in shape. But that's what's necessary in order to grow. And mark it down, there is never any kind of success apart from discipline. Show me anybody that's been a success in any kind of field. And I'll show you somebody that's learned to be disciplined in their life. Proverbs 13 and 18, he who ignores discipline will come to what? Say it out loud. Poverty and and shame. And nowhere is that more true than when it comes to spiritual growth. You fail 
to act with discipline in the development of your spiritual life, and you will come to poverty and shame. It may cost your marriage. It may cost your relationship with your children. It may cost you your job. It may cost you financially. It may cost you relationally. Vance Havner, who was one of Adrian Rogers' mentors, the great country preacher from the North Carolina Hills, once said the alternative to discipline is disaster. Discipline is the price tag of victory. It's the price of achievement. It's the price of freedom. And it's the price of spiritual growth. There are no shortcuts to spiritual growth. And I'm just telling you, a sermon a week isn't going to cut it. Connect group lesson a week is not alone to get you there. Serving in ministry every so often, great. But that by itself is not going to do it. You have to work at it and not just work. I'm just saying you got to work really hard at it. The people that you know that you most respect spiritually because of their knowledge of Scripture, their knowledge of the Word, their prayer life, their involvement and investment in the church, listen, that didn't just happen overnight. That's the product of years of personal training. You have to work at it, and you have to work very hard. The best definition of discipline that I've ever heard is doing the things that you'd rather not do in order to get to a destination that you really want to arrive at. Doing those things you really don't want to do in order to get to a destination you really do want to arrive at. For 38 years, 1974 to 2012, the University of Tennessee Lady Volunteers were coached by Pat Summit, one of the most storied basketball programs in the history of collegiate athletics. 38 years at head coach, she never had a losing season, not one. This is unheard of. How successful was she as a basketball coach? She's now deceased and with the Lord. 1,100 wins. 200 losses. That's a winning percentage of about 8-5-0. 18 Final Fours. Eight national champions. Amazing. I'd take that record. Amen. She wrote a book on leadership that I read as a young pastor back in the mid-1990s. And there's a great section in there that I marked out because here's what she says. I think we got it on the screen. I love this. Here's how I'm going to beat you. I'm going to outwork you. That's it. That's all there is to it. You've just learned my most valuable secret. It's not that exciting. I know you were hoping for some mystery or witchcraft. The problem is there is no great intangible quality of success. It's not a gift people are born with or a touch or a talent or a knack. It's a simple matter of putting your back into it, and so is growing spiritually. In his wonderful little book, Outliers, the social psychologist Malcolm Gladwell talks about what he calls the 10,000-hour rule. There's a whole chapter devoted to the 10,000-hour rule in that particular chapter, he's talking about musicians specifically, like the ones that were on the stage over here, the ones that were on the stage tonight. He was really talking about master musicians. I mean, people that have really mastered their skill and have become very popular. 
And he says in this chapter, he says, the thing that distinguishes one performer from another is how hard he or she works. The people at the very top don't work much harder or even, I'm sorry, the people at the very top don't work harder or even much harder than everyone else. They work much, much harder. And then he talks about great chess champions and all-star hockey players and all-star basketball players and music groups. And he says the magic number for expertise in most fields is 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours. And that's true of all those giants spiritually that you know that you want to emulate with your life. They weren't born that way. They just worked very, very hard because they were disciplined. Now, we're not in competition with each other in Christian family, and we're not in a race. You got the rest of your lives to grow. But the point is that success and achievement and personal growth will always cost you something. And the question tonight is, y'all still with me? Say amen. The question lies, you're willing to pay the price to get where you want to be in your relationship with God. The price tag of that success is, in a word, discipline, hard work, doing things you may really rather not do in order to get where you really want to go. Train yourself to be godly. But then the second dimension is train yourself to be godly. The discipline is personal. Paul's emphatic with Timothy. This is on you, brother. And you won't be able to blame anybody else. If you don't grow spiritually, it's your fault. If you do grow spiritually, it's because you've put your back into it and you've determined to do it by the grace of God. Paul could not be at Ephesus to baby Timothy. He couldn't. He was at a distance, no cell phone. He couldn't keep up with him on a cell phone. It took a long time for those letters to arrive by courier. And so if it was going to happen in Timothy's life, if it was going to happen in Titus's life, it would be because they were going to have to determine to do it. We practice at Hillcrest, or we believe at Hillcrest, what's known as the priesthood of every believer. That means you're a priest to God. You don't have to have a clergyman in order to have a thriving, growing relationship with God because you're a priest. We are together as the people of God, a kingdom of priests. And so with the Bible in your hand and the Spirit of God in your heart, you have the makings of maturity as a disciple of Jesus Christ. question is, are you going to do it? That's all you need. You could be on a desert island like Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. No church, no fellowship, no nothing. But if you know Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit and you're ready to grow. The question is, will you do it? My kids were young. They would get into fixes or whatever, and I'd try to encourage them to get out of it or to do something themselves. And the first thing they would always say is, Daddy, I can't. And I developed this comeback. I'd say, don't say can't, say can. They heard me say that a billion times. Don't say can't, say can. I wouldn't do it for them. Don't say can't, say can. And eventually they'd figure out how to do it or they'd quit whining about it, one of the two. There's a poem I learned when I was a kid, and I don't know the whole thing, but I remember this part. Victory does not always go to the strongest or fastest man, but sooner or later the man who wins is the man who thinks he can. 
It's not always the most talented team that wins the World Series. It's not always the most talented team that wins the Super Bowl. It's not always the most gifted tennis player that wins Wimbledon. Most of the time, it's attitude and determination that make the difference, and that's true in spiritual growth. So the means of discipline is training. Train yourself to be godly. The focus of discipline is personal. Train yourself to be godly. And then finally, the goal of discipline, there it is, the goal of discipline, godliness, godliness. Train yourself to be godly. Did you know that to be called a godly man is the highest compliment that anybody can make about you? Because they're basically telling you, you resemble what I understand of God from his word. Man, that's the highest goal of my life, to be referred to as a godly pastor, to be referred to as a godly husband, to be referred to as a godly father, to have other people say of me, there goes a man of God who's obviously a godly man. And that means they see a reflection of the character of God in you. Some people will see that and love it. Some people will see it and they may not like it. I heard the story one time about a young man in his 20s. He graduated from college, but he really wanted to get married and he didn't really have any prospects and he was concerned about all these girls getting married and he was afraid he was gonna get left behind. And So he got really serious about dating and every time he'd find a girl that he thought was a real winner, he'd take her home and introduce her to mama. And maybe they'd have dinner together or whatever. And so he took his first girlfriend to meet his mother, and his mother didn't like her. And so he tried another girl, and he got to know her, and eventually took her home to meet Mama, and Mama didn't like her. And this happened time after time after time. And he was having lunch with a friend of his one time and said, well, how's the dating life going? He said, well, the dating life's going good, but the problem is I can't get Mama to like any of these girls. And the guy said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, I don't know. And the guy thought for a minute. He said, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. He said, you're going to go out and you're going to find a girl that looks like your mama. You're going to find a girl that has the same taste as your mama, that likes the same kind of clothes, the same kind of designers, the same kind of furniture. You go out and find someone who is like your mother and you've just raised the likelihood that your mother is going to like her. And so this guy began to work very diligently. And finally, someone, a young lady, caught his eye. And he thought, well, she kind of resembles my mother. And then he got to know her a little bit. And sure enough, a lot of the same mannerisms. Liked a lot of the same TV shows. Liked a lot of the same kinds of foods dressed very similarly, had same, the same kinds of tastes. And they developed a deep relationship over time, and finally he thought, I finally got the winner. And a few days later, he had lunch again with his friend, and he said, man, I'm dying to know, how did it go? I know you took her home to meet your mother. How did it go? And he said, man, I was telling you, mama loved her. He said, that's great. He said, no, but it's not going to work. And I've already broke up with her. And he said, why is it going to work? And he said, well, the problem wasn't mama. The problem was this time my father didn't like her. (laughs) 
man, just being able to tell that story was worth saying yes to come and do it tonight because I could never tell that story on Sunday morning. Amen. The most important thing in your life is to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. Some will like it, others will not, but the only thing that matters is what God thinks. And the greatest desire of my life is to please God with my life. Growth in godliness means becoming like Christ. And he'll notice it when you do. And the point I simply want to make tonight is that you don't become like Christ accidentally. There are no shortcuts. You cannot dabble your way to spiritual maturity. I've never known a spiritually mature person who arrived at maturity except through discipline and hard work. You have to train yourself to be godly. You can't always control the people that come into your life. You can't always control the circumstances in life, but you can decide to read the Bible. You can decide to have a prayer life. You can decide to keep a journal. You can decide to fast. You can decide to be accountable to other men. And you can, yes, you can train yourself to be godly. And train you must, because for the man of God, godliness is not an option. This is not a suggestion, it's a command. Hillcrest is here to help, but the bottom line is this. Spiritual growth is God's will for your life. You have to decide you're going to grow, and never forget, you and only you are responsible for your own spiritual growth.